You're listening to Malka Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Ready for the takeoff. Yeah. No, no, we won't talk like Saddam Hussein and say the mother of all takeoffs. But it is a show tailor-made for you where Ibrahim Bah, alhamdulillah, with that experience he has, years and years of experience, he brings it uh, to the platform, the Marka Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah, wal Jama'ah. And alhamdulillah, our segment is always, uh, you know, punctuated uh, with lots and lots of uh, research, all done, not by me, people, by my one and only, the one I love uh, very dearly, Ibrahim Badacha, my Ibrahim Bah. Ibrahim Badacha, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, I think it's fine. Beautiful evening, Ba. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Ba. And of course, our listeners to Radio Marka Sahaba. Indeed, it is a beautiful evening after a somewhat uh, cold weekend. Uh, the sun's come out and alhamdulillah, we had a lovely day today and looking forward to an even lovelier night. Yeah, as you say, you're looking forward to a lovelier night and lovely day and everything's lovely besides the Mr. Electricity and the load shedding. And very proudly indeed, after the induction of a electricity minister, he seems he became the electricity minister of short circuits and blackouts. He's gone worse and worse. I mean, he's, uh, you know, people looked up to him as a savior. But uh, you know what? Since he came on, it's gone, uh, you know, into the dark ages, Ibrahim Ba. Your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the way you put it. And uh, of course, what you're saying is absolutely uh, true. And uh, personally, I think there is another agenda at play over here. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the dire straits that we find ourselves in vis-a-vis the energy uh, issues we've been having for the past decade or more. And uh, I think it's bigger than just one man. So you can appoint whoever you want and bring their grandfather along as well. It's not going to happen unless the powers that be want it to happen. So, yeah, I think Itaquini that had been spared uh, thus far because of the uh, recent floods uh, has now going to, you know, join the rest of the country and have, I think in Gauteng, they're having 10 hours or so of load shedding a day, if not more. So we're going to be having more of the same over here. And of course, it's going to wreak havoc with the lives of ordinary people and not to mention business and industry and things like that. It's going to be terrible, really. And uh, already uh, the uh, offices that we rent in the city, uh, they sent us a nice uh, letter to tell us that uh, <laughs> now that the load shedding is going to be increased, then uh, we're going to have to uh, prorate the cost of fuel and generator maintenance, and you're all going to have to pay more. So, yeah, all around they are ripping the people off by... Uh, Fuel sales, and of course, you know that uh, 30%, if not more, of the price of a litre of fuel goes to the government by way of various taxes and things like that. So uh, they're not uh, worried about anything like uh, motor vehicle assurance and all that MBA and all that. There's nothing because there's no, no cars moving on the road. This is just your stationary generator that's pumping out power when they shut the, the, the mains off. So, uh, yeah, the government is ripping us off uh, royally. And uh, unfortunately, there's precious little we as citizens can do. Yeah, you can jump on your bandwagon and shout and yell and scream and do what you want. But uh, it's falling on deaf ears thus far, Ba. You know, Ba, uh, it's amazing. A liberation movement, a movement that fought for your rights, uh, uh, you know, a movement that fought capitalism has become the bastions of capitalism have become uh, the uh, puppets and of the puppeteers that are controlling them. 
the masters themselves, the Zionist Brigade and uh, the West. What happened, Ibrahim Ba? When did this uh, liberation movement go pear-shaped, Ba? Yeah, look, the thing is, at the end of the day, I always say follow the money, you know. And the thing is, what we must appreciate and understand, if one uh, looks back in history and one researches, and I'm not talking of mainstream media, they'll give you the usual narrative, official narrative that's a whole lot of BS most times. The thing is, if you have the time, you know, the luxury of time and you, you know where to look for this kind of information, even from the time... <clears throat> that de Klerk was still there before the uh, regime change, shall we say, the advent of democracy. All those guys, even it was, I think it was him, it was Nelson Mandela, it was uh, uh, Trevor Manuel, I forget, uh, Tito Mbueni, of course, and uh, our current Cyril Ramaphosa, were all already affiliates to the WEF, which is the World Economic Forum, young uh, emerging sort of uh, political leaders that were already compromised from that time. So uh, no surprises insofar as I'm concerned, because we all know what the WEF agenda is, that Klaus Schwab and uh, that Harari character, all those crazy lunatics over there that are going to be causing degeneration amongst uh, humanity per se. They just have that one track mind and one agenda, right? And as long as the money people are in in power, you know, they know no boundaries. They don't care whether you're South African or Russian or German or whatever. It's the money. They worship at the feet of mammon, right? And they they know no loyalty to whichever country they might have been uh, born in. No, as long as it makes money for them, that's all they're concerned about. And it's a question of driving us into serfdom as, as ordinary citizens, you know, uh, and uh, this is where it's at. So uh, I don't uh, think there ever was a chance for South Africa as such. I mean, they gave uh, you gave the people, the previously disadvantaged people, uh, political control. But who controls the money controls everything. And this, unfortunately, is still in the hands of those uh, uh, few uh, uber-rich elite people that, uh, like I say, are multinational. They they don't have loyalty to any one country or the other as long as they make the money and while the people suffer, it means nothing to them. You know, Ibrahim, when I, mean, I was reading this article where, uh, you know, they said that uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's wife and uh, Patricia, Patrice Mutsepe's mm. wife Mm. Uh, board, uh, board members of WEF. And then I just saw Ibrahim <laughs> Ba in front of me and I said, hey, hey, hey Ba is right there. They, they, I mean, these people and they, uh, the, 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 the Motsepes, uh, I mean, he's one of the richest men in the world. And you know how, you know how they work it. And uh, these are all glorified managers for for these conglomerates, uh, Ibrahim Ba. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're all, they're all, the, you know, they, they, they play to the, they, they follow the piper. You know, the, whatever tune gets played, they just got to follow. They have no say in the matter. Yes, they have become fabulously wealthy, uh, obscenely so. But at the end of the day, you take the money away and what's left over there? Huh? Really? I mean... Yeah, well said. Uh, I yeah. don't know. The thing is, they sold their souls to the devil. That's the end of the story. And at the end of the day, they'll see that they did a poor bargain at the end of the day. Not now. Now they can revel in it, you know, and then Shaitan will say, 
Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't me. I merely suggested it to them. I didn't tell them to do it. They went and did it of their own accord. And then they'll know all about it. So let them be. Let them be. Yeah, let them be. And uh, yeah, once you sell your soul to the devil, then you know what happens to you. He'll hang you. Yeah. He'll hang you and say, no, I didn't hang him. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> Ibrahim Babu, moving on here to our travel yeah. express. Uh, we noticed that uh, safari camp operators in uh, Zimbabwe, they challenge oil drilling at World Heritage, Heritage Site, knowing mm. that Amanangwabwa, yeah, Amanangwabwa, or what's his name? He's <laughs> also captured by WEF, Ibrahim Ba. Yeah, the whole lot of them, really. You know, you don't get there by being a genuine, honest, uh, sincere uh, hard-working, just person. No, you got to sell your soul, and then uh, they'll give you what you want, and you get you got to give them what they want. That's it. Okay, coming back to the safari camp operators in Zimbabwe. Yeah, they are protesting oil explore, exploration uh, project that is uh, now going to be uh, applied for. Is already applied for permits in the renowned Mana pools in Zimbabwe, which is, of course, a World Heritage Site. And uh, it's a very popular area, and with operators that have uh, lodgings and things, they're charging in excess of $1,000, which can translate or more, translate to about 20,000 rand per night if you want to stay over there. And they are arguing very vociferously that oil exploration would worsen global warming and biodiversity loss. You know, this global warming is another scam that they're putting all over humanity. But anyway, that's a discussion for another day. Uh, that's man-made global warming, by the way. The ch climate change will always change according to Allah's will. But uh, this uh, is scamming us with something else. Okay, so there's uh, quite a few uh, renowned uh, establishments like African bush camps and, uh, uh, you know, others that are based in this area. And they have uh, articulated and reduced to writing their concern and sent that off to the uh, a letter off to the Mining Affairs Board, and they believe very strongly that granting a permit to get this name again, Shalom Mining, hello, for oil exploration would harm the environment. And of course, there's other players there like Wilderness Safaris, which is very popular, that operates three camps in Manapool. They have also uh, objected very strenuously to the granting of that license. And uh, Mana Pools, for those who don't know it, is located on the Zambezi River. It attracts diverse wildlife such as elephants, buffaloes, lions, cheetahs, and leopards, and, this, and the rest. But uh, the site, which covers 676,000 hectares, uh, is indeed a national park and, like I said, a World Heritage Site and has safari areas. Uh, Shalom Mining has applied for an exploration license covering 130 hectares within the heritage site. So that's what they're saying. They're just going to take one part of it and, and carry on over there. But uh, if you start somewhere, Lord knows where it will finish. And uh, uh, the camp operators argue that uh, the natural beauty and wildlife will be, you know, uh, compromised severely and that uh, any mining activity in the area would undermine tourist confidence, not only in Manapool's area, but in Zimbabwe as a whole. And uh, while the objections have been received, they still want to set a meeting date, I think it's sometime later this month or maybe into June, 
Uh, Friday was the deadline for objections, making marking a crucial stage in the dispute. So uh, it's a question of how they're going to rule on it. A, they most probably will need the money and the investment that might come with it and the oil if they do find it. So uh, it's up to them to take a decision one way or the other. Either you save the area ecologically or you look at the other side, uh, which again appeals to the capitalists in the people there and of course the uh, desperate need uh, for funds in uh, Zimbabwe itself. So that's about the size of it. Yeah, you know, once you're talking about that, Ibrahim, we believe uh, that the uh, Chor government of Pakistan also, uh, you know, um, uh, allowing China to, uh, uh, to, to, to mine, uh, you know, all these uh, lithium and so forth there in uh, one of the provinces in Pakistan. And uh, they, they say this is why China is quiet on the uh, Imran Khan issue and so forth. And, uh, you know, it seems uh, this, uh, these governments will do anything uh, to sell out, I mean, at the expense of the nation, of, uh, you know, the the, the, uh, the Pakistanis are being, you know, being looted by their own government and allowing others to loot them and at the expense of an army that is captured by uh, the conglomerates of the world. And they, if you look at the army, are, are another bunch of uh, uh, greedy people, uh, Ibrahim Ba. Hey, you know, there's no word for them. Slime doesn't come anywhere close even. But again, if you look at the history politically and otherwise, the military and of course very closely with the intelligence, which is ISI, they have been rotten to the core for many decades now, not just from now. And uh, whether the 200 odd million people in uh, the country uh, can uh, yell and shout and uh, protest for Imran Khan, and I believe he of all the people that are there currently, he would be the right person to lead the country out of the quagmire that it is. That's if they don't conspire to kill him uh, before the election come or prevent him from uh, being, uh, you know, a party uh, to contest the elections over there. But uh, yeah, Pakistan hasn't covered itself in glory by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah, it's a faulty lot that is in charge. And of course, they take their marching orders from the West that, you know, is patently clear. And like I mentioned last time out when we spoke is that the current uh, PM is sitting in, uh, where's this place now, I forget, somewhere in, uh, in, in London, visiting his family members over there whilst all this uh, shenanigans are carrying on in his country. So it just shows you uh, where his loyalty lies. Uh, the thing is, again, follow the money. They worship money and material possession. So uh, this is what it is, and to hell with the people. And sadly, the army is full of their gundas and their goons over there that will do their bidding without question. And they'll say, oh, we are following orders. That's all it is. Yeah, following the orders. Uh, we got orders, yeah. Order, order, flight to Cape Town, please. Well, mm-hmm. Cape Town has been ranked as South Africa's uh, number one city. And uh, Johannesburg, I can't believe this, number three. Mm. What's going on? And where's Durban, Ibrahim Ba? (laughs) (laughs) You know where Durban is. I don't have to tell you. Anyway, yeah, Cape Town again has uh, come out on top uh, of Africa's top city brand, not just South Africa, Africa. And that's saying something, I I would think. And uh, it was positioned 60th globally in the brand finance city index. Now, that's the survey uh, company that does all these things. And the index is based on a survey of nearly 15,000 respondents from 20 countries, and uh, the, they measure various perceptions 
of the world's top 100 cities. And this is done, I think, annually, so that uh, there's always movement up and down, depending on whether the uh, city has improved or is going in the wrong direction. And uh, of course, Cape Town's leading position is due to its natural beauty, stunning coastline and mountains, and of course, its uh, rich cultural heritage and uh, affordable lifestyle, uh, not for me and you, I'm talking about the ones that come in with the euros and the pounds and the dollars, I mean, 20 to one or thereabouts will get you a lot. Uh, of course, the city is very popular among tourists and it has favorable weather except uh, cold, wet winters. Uh, and uh, this, this contributes to the appeal of the city itself. And uh, of course, the survey again considered factors such as familiarity, reputation, personal consideration for living, working, studying, retiring, visiting or investing. So those were the criteria that were taken into consideration. And uh, that is where Cape Town stood head and shoulders over the rest of uh, not just South Africa, but Africa. And uh, of course, it were, the ranking was influenced quite considerably by attributes uh, such as a business investment and sustainability. Uh, factors. And uh, whilst the city does have its own socio-economic challenges, its thriving tourism industry and location, strategic location it has as a major port offers opportunities for economic growth and trade with emerging markets. Now, Johannesburg, you might say, what's going on over there? Yeah. So Johannesburg came in second overall and ranked 72nd globally. That's just 12 points behind uh, Cape Town globally. And uh, sorry, I I, I, I I misquoted there, 72nd globally and third in Africa. So it's second in, in South Africa and third in Africa. And uh, of course, everyone knows that it is South Africa's economic powerhouse and has a significant uh, financial and business hub. And uh, despite its higher crime rates, uh, Johannesburg shows potential for future growth with its strong economy and skilled workforce. Now, to enhance a global standing, South African cities should, I think, uh, focus on promoting uh, vibrant cultural scenes, sustainable development, and of course, uh, look at infrastructure investment, while of course, trying to, and I say trying to, prioritize safety and inclusivity. And uh, of course, our natural beauty, the remarkable, remarkable natural beauty and diversity of our country and our cities contribute greatly to their positive reputation internationally. So, uh, yeah, that's the story there, Brother Shafat. But uh, you asked about Itikwini. Itikwini is in the Maya right now, so uh, I don't know. There's been a <laughs> chat about the Indaba recently and things like that, which we'll talk about, but uh, it's not even on the map. Sorry, eh? Hey, I feel so sorry, man. When I should travel before, say, I'm from Durban, South Africa. Mm -hmm. yeah, oh, Durban, beautiful place, eh? Beautiful Durban. Yeah. What they did to Durban, Sir Benjamin Durban. I wonder what he's thinking. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> He must be rolling in his grave, poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> and poor Dick King is still riding that horse yeah, in the Esplanade. Yeah. Getting nowhere fast, though, unfortunately. He's still there. Yeah. <laughs> It's quite amazing they didn't go for Dick King, uh, Ibrahim. Yeah. Well, give them time. Give them time. And all else fail. Yeah. Blame it on somebody else. Yeah, I'll drop Dick King from his horse. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> to flog a horse, Ibrahim. You know, <laughs> moving on. And then we look at, uh, you know, they talk about African airlines. 
Uh, you know, they uh, talking about them and saying African airlines are still struggling uh, profitability. That is amazing. You know, we're talking about the Ethiopian airlines. They were, you know, Africa's top airlines. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, what's going on here, Ibrahim? Huh? Well, look, I think uh, a lot has to do with uh, the advent of COVID a few years back. It knocked the industry sideways. We all know that. And I think uh, everybody globally in the industry per se is, uh, you know, on the upward trend, uh, looking to make things profitable again. Uh, of course, the outlook for profitability in Africa remains negative due to various factors, and revenue growth is not keeping up with increasing costs, unfortunately, for these carriers. Additionally, a significant portion of South Africa of Africa's fleet is inactive now. I'm not sure if anyone knows. Uh, you know, in airline parlance, the thing is, if your bird is not flying for I think 22 or 23 hours out of 24 then you are losing money, right? So uh, underutilization of the fleet is a major contribution. And of course, the average age of aircraft in Africa is 17 years, which is uh, considerable, but uh, not unheard of. And uh, of course, these are older uh, carrier aircraft and uh, leading to lower fuel efficiency and higher fuel and insurance costs. So that is what is plaguing them uh, currently, uh, Bar. And whilst IATA, the International Air Transport Association, predicts that Africa will recover to uh, pre-pandemic levels, or should I say, pandemic levels in 2023, but uh, full financial recovery is only expected maybe 24-25. And uh, African airlines remain financially vulnerable with an estimated net profit margin in negative territory of one minus 1.7 percent and of course south africa lags behind everyone else and uh, traffic is expected to reach only 80 percent of 2019 levels and uh, full recovery in southern africa is also projected uh, for 2025. basically in summary african airlines uh, continue to struggle with the profitability issues and that's due again to revenue growth, inactive fleets, aging aircraft, and higher operating costs. Uh, what is in their favor, however, is the anticipated increase in uh, GDP that presents opportunities for growth if the airline can provide the necessary capacity. And of course, the path to recovery of Africa's aviation industry may be slower when compared to other regions uh, internationally. But uh, there is hope. So as long as there's hope, uh, they'll keep plugging away and hopefully things will improve. Well, Ibrahim says as long as there's hope, uh, things will improve, uh, will, uh, improve, inshallah. Fly me high in African skies with Bar Airlines, owned <laughs> by Ibrahim Fadachia, my Bar. Yeah, how about that, Bar? Get yeah. some of our Bar brews and get your own airlines. Man. Yeah, come yeah, on, they bar. tried it. I think there was some... Uh, initial, uh, how shall I say, forays looking at the possibilities. But uh, I think uh, it's not something, unless you have very deep pockets and you know the industry, the thing is it'll be, you know, a big ask to just break in there and uh, try and get up and do things. That is why we're talking about that Takata and South African Airways merger and things like that, that's still carrying on. So let's see where we go with that lot. You know, Pa, I got so much of a confidence in you. If you got the right man around you, hey, you make <laughs> miracles happen. But anyway, let's move on, Pa. 
we are going to, you know, where we're going to uh, no more mass tourism, Bali to implement a tourism quota, uh, quota uh, mm-hmm. you know, systems that reduce tourism. What's uh, that, uh, that all about, Ba? Yeah, Bali High, they used to call it very popular, been there many times. And of course, it is still a very popular tourist destination and it's renowned, of course, for its stunning landscapes, a vibrant culture and a very, very warm and hospitable uh, Balinese people. And uh, they're implementing a tourist quota system in an effort to manage the influx of visitors, would you believe? You know, over tourism, that is also uh, a challenge, not just there, but uh, elsewhere in Europe and places like that where the people are just sick and tired of getting invaded by people coming all the time. And uh, the island has been grappling with the negative effects of mass tourism, including environmental degradation and strains on infrastructure and resources. Now, the introduction of the quota aims to strike a balance between preserving the island's natural beauty and cultural heritage while allowing visitors to experience its uh, beauty and wonders that it has to afford. And uh, I think the decision uh, reflects the shift towards sustainable tourism practices. And what they are trying to do is uh, limit the number of visitors and uh, mitigate the environmental impact caused by excessive tourism. And of course, if you've been there, the island's fragile ecosystems, such as coral reefs, rice terraces, they all require protection from overcrowding and, of course, uh, overuse with an oversaturation of tourism. And uh, additionally, the quota seeks to address the strain on infrastructure resources such as road to water supply, waste management system, which are under sheer uh, pressure because of the number of uh, and the volume of tourists that come through. And hopefully what they are trying to do is by controlling the number of visitors, they can better manage these vital resources and maintain the well-being of local communities. So what they're doing is that they'll say, okay, fine, uh, so many of y'all can come in, but they're spreading the load around, you know, the the various uh, attractions, the various places that people can go. So you don't get the feeling that you are being uh, overwhelmed. So uh, having said that, uh, the specifics are not yet known. They have yet to be finalized, but... Uh, what I expect is that uh, it will involve a combination of entry permits and visitor limits for specific areas, like I said, and attractions. So this approach will allow them to distribute or redistribute tourist activities more evenly across the island, uh, reducing the concentration of visitors in popular hotspots and promoting a more sustainable and inclusive tourism experience. So uh, I think uh, it's a good move on their part because uh, it's a smallish island and uh, everyone seems to uh, gravitate to one or the other of the tourism hotspots. So what they are trying to do is spread the load and uh, sort of uh, reduce the volume somewhat to help. Rally Brahimba, we get to a topic that uh, you and I were <laughs> preempted in the beginning. Africa's uh, travel in Daba 2023 and it says it was Electric. How electric was it, Ibrahim Ba? Uh, well, I don't know. Depending on <laughs> whether they're talking about a 12-volt battery or maybe 10,000 volts of electricity, <laughs> that remains to be seen. And I guess it is. Uh, it is. It was. Uh, uh, it exceeded expectation and being a phenomenal success. You know, there's this play on words. The thing is, I attended the show myself on two days, and. Uh, 
given the history of the show, um, there were no great shakes, you know what I'm saying? In the sense that uh, it didn't uh, seem to me that it was up there with the best years that they might have had in the past. But anyway, getting back to what they were saying, that uh, the Indaba held uh, recently, I think it was a week a week or so ago, thereabouts, yeah, week or two, and uh, they claimed that it exceeded their expectations and it attracted 8,629 delegates. It facilitated 21,000 meetings between exhibitors and international buyers, and uh, it had uh, 1,023 exhibitors and 1,000 international buyers, okay? And uh, the event showcased the offerings of 22 African countries. Now, the acting chief convention bureau officer at South African tourism, Zinjlen Zama, she hailed it as a success, uh, successful event and emphasized the contributions of the partners and the African tourism industry players. And uh, of course, they do a comparison year on year, and they say they saw a significant increase in meetings from 13,000 to 21,000. And uh, Pindile Makwakwa, I hope I got that name right, uh, CEO at Tourism KZN, highlighted the collaborative effort in making this a pan-African showcase. And there was also the opportunity for international uh, delegates to participate in pre and post tours. And this allowed uh, buyers and media to get to experience uh, KZN's tourism offerings, like I think they took them up to the uh, St. Lucia wetlands and uh, one or two other places just to show them what we have to offer in KZN. Uh, the good thing, uh, positive uh, impact on uh, economy, and it apparently contributed an estimated 130 million to Durban's GDP, and uh, hotels were about 80% plus uh, full, and of course it generated 78 million in actual spend. Now, there's another lady there that's the head, deputy head, of course, of Durban Tourism, Winnie, Winnie, I'll call her Winnie, she expressed gratitude for the media coverage and outlines Durban future plans that included uh, international film city, a new shopping center, as if we haven't got enough, and of course, efforts to enhance cruise tourism. And uh, of course, they're saying that uh, Indaba demonstrated uh, Africa's vibrancy as a tourism industry and the potential for growth. But uh, like I say, personally, I look at it as being a very subjective uh, sort of uh, uh, report on there. The thing is, you're having 21,000 meetings all well and good. How much uh, of that actually translates into business that uh, actually materializes, meaning that uh, the people actually come to visit the country or Africa or wherever, whoever is pitching the sales. So I think that is uh, something that is uh, crucial and something that uh, will give you the real uh, fact of the matter. Thereof, you can have 10,000 meetings and if nobody comes, well, nobody comes, it's just a waste of time. But uh, yeah, there you have it, Brother Shafat. That was the Indaba for you. Yeah, I tell you, Brian, but that was absolutely brilliant because Indaba is only Indaba. Yeah, in Daba when NZ low. 
We have a nice food here, there, and everywhere. Prime Bar, you are brilliant as usual. Uh, already a comprehensive program, and Alhamdulillah, Allah bless you for that. Perhaps your parting words are before I let you go. Yeah, let me just give you this quote from none other than Ho Chi Minh. You might remember him from uh, Vietnam and when the Americans went there and got their backside mm. kicked, eventually. Yeah. Bye bye you know, American they pie. painted him out to be uh, some sort of devil with horns and a big tail and a fork and all that sort of thing. Listen to what the man had to say. He said, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will finally know peace. Now, how deep is that, Brother Shafat? Mm. That was, uh, you can repeat it for the listeners. Do it one more time, yeah, Bart. Yeah. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will finally know peace. And I mean no, K-N-O-W, as opposed to N-O, yes. which is what it is right now. Because the power of love is not stronger than the love of power. And this is the problem, basically. Yeah, no empathy, no... Nothing. No, nothing, nothing. nothing. It's, it's gone. It's, uh, you know... Uh, everyone has become a robot. It's mm. all about uh, robotics and, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking a mankind, taking all his senses away and dulling him for good, Ibrahim Ba. Yeah, making us redundant, basically, you know. That's what they are doing. But uh, look, uh, they plan. And the best of planners is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let them try their stunts. And we'll see who will come out top in the end. Inshallah, inshallah. It's not going to be easy. Make no mistake, it's not going to be easy for whoever is living through that time. I don't know whether, maybe you will, but I don't know if I'll be living. No, we be. Uh, hey, we rather be with the maker, man, than to be yeah, the disaster. This is, yeah. madness. this is absolute madness. I mean, when they, yeah, I mean, if they, you know, it's so degenerate and their minds are so warped where they are now legalizing bestiality and things like that and talking about uh, giving the mm, sex education and this is approved by by the heads of the un and world health organization what's left tell me what's left it's frightening bar it it's is absolutely this is why you know i i, I urge all our, our, our people, all our people out there, especially the parents, the mothers, and of course not forgetting the, the older generation, the grandparents and all to hang on with dear life for those children that are with them and grandchildren and, and inculcate in them the values and morals that we grew up with and were schooled with. Not today's madness, you know. Oh God, Allah have mercy on everyone. That's all I can say, brother. Amin Ibrahim Ba, you have a mashallah beautiful evening ahead. We'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam to you, Ba, and of course to our listeners out there. I sincerely hope we added value to the evening. Inshallah, I'm sure we did, Ibrahim Ba. I'd like to thank Lucalo for great engineering. I keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming from the team. And I till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.